Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, like it or not, we're about to hear from three of the most influential people in media and society, and I'm not talking about the fancy, mostly flashy social media influences. The pandemic should have all but buried any remnants of debate that newspapers and news media are an anachronistic legacy of a bygone era. Audiences have piled into the mastheads in unprecedented numbers since the pandemic kicked early last year in a public display of solidarity and demand for credible sourced information. The same happened for the bushfires and the floods before COVID changed everything. But what happens now that lockdowns are lifting, borders are opening and the people can escape their screens and newspaper armchairs more often for some real life stuff? Will audiences hold for the mainstream mastheads and what replaces the public hunger for COVID updates, context and perspectives? What will people want in 2022? What do advertisers want next year? You'll remember many brands went dark on news during the early stages of the outbreak despite rocketing readership. Is that advertiser sentiment changing? On the mics today are three masthead editors, the Australian's editor, Michelle Gunn, the Asian Sydney Morning Herald's executive editor, Tori Maguire, and beaming in from far, far away is Anthony DeSegli, editor-in-chief at the West Australian Newspapers. Between them, they're sitting on upwards of 600,000 digital subscribers. That is, people paying for news and perspectives. So something is working. Let's find out. Welcome to you all. Uh, Let's start with the obvious one. Probably to you first, Michelle, by how much will your audiences retreat as COVID is tamed for now at least, or or can you hold them and welcome? Thanks, Paul. Look, I, I think there's no doubt that in the early days of the pandemic, our audience numbers were extraordinary. I think that would be the case for all three of us as people grappled with the pandemic and what it meant for them and their families. But, Paul, the pandemic is still with us and and the social, the economic, the political ramifications of it are playing out on our pages every day of the week um, and our digital sites for that matter. Border openings, travel restrictions, vaccine mandates, the property market, you name it. So I would like to think we've reached a new normal, if if you like, and I think that new normal extends to continued insatiable demand from our readers. Michelle, did you see, though, with even some of the lockdowns, I know you're a national, but in some of the states, when there was lockdowns, there was spikes in traffic as people couldn't do much else other than consume um, great content. But did you see spikes and has it come off as you see lockdowns uh, sort of uh, dissipate? Yeah, we absolutely saw spikes. And, you know, there was a three or four month period there last year where we had never seen anything like the... um, the numbers on our live blogs in particular. Um, I think some of the numbers on those live blogs have come off a little bit, you know, particularly as the 11am press conference has has disappeared. But I think that overall audience numbers are holding up well and, of course, the digital subscription numbers are holding up well too. Anthony, uh, over there in the West, uh, you've seen some pretty good numbers too, right? And and, and what happens to them as as we sort of move through towards maybe the end, hopefully the end uh, or the next stage of the end of COVID? How's that? Yeah, look, I think, and and thank you for having me on, Um, look, I, I think at the end of the day, we saw people come back to us because of trust in traditional media outlets and 
they wanted the truth, they wanted us to cut through the spin and, and they came to traditional outlets. And I think trust is a really good driver of loyalty. And so I do think that the customers will be sticky, for lack of a better word. Um, and, you know, the truth is the news happens, right? I mean, we're right now, we've got a story over here of a little four-year-old girl that's gone missing, you know, potentially abducted from a camping site. And we're seeing, you know, numbers just as strong as any we saw during the, the lockdowns and the start of COVID for that story. So, you know, the stories will come, the news will happen. Um, and I think that, you know, if we keep up our end of the bargain, which is telling telling the news the right way, then the audience will stay with us. Just, have you got a sense of the numbers there, Anthony, and what you did see pre-COVID and, 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 and through COVID, what happened at least a percentage, uh, percentage range? Yeah, look, I, I probably, um, off the top of my head, I probably can't talk about a percentage range. But I mean, look, we saw massive numbers. Um, but like I said, I mean, you know, I was, I was just talking to the, um, to the newsroom just then about some of the numbers we've seen on, on this missing girl Cleo, one of our stories, I think, had 150,000 engaged minutes yesterday, um, and that, that would rival anything that happened during COVID. Tori, um, what's happening in, in Melbourne and Sydney with The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, likewise with your, with your audiences? Well, it's interesting, Paul. We obviously, like everyone else, had a massive spike in uh, traffic during the early stages of the pandemic particularly, but we're talking about two separate things here and two different goals. We're a subscription-driven newsroom, like the newsrooms of, of my peers here. And yes, we have seen the overall traffic go up and down as lockdowns have come and gone. But interestingly, in the wake of the first um, lockdown that affected New South Wales, we didn't see a big drop-off in the number of subscribers that signed up during that period. We didn't see a big drop-off in the subscribers that signed up during Melbourne's um terrible winter of discontent last year. Right. And that's partly, I think, because we recognised very early with this big influx of subscribers coming in that we needed to do something possibly a bit special to try and keep them. And we actually ran a project that we called Project Engage that was about making sure that we specifically targeted the new subscribers who had come in through COVID to try and keep them looking at content because obviously and this would be the same everywhere, our data shows that the more stories a subscriber reads in a month, the less likely they are to churn back out. And while the traffic, the overall traffic figures go up and down depending on the news, we have not had those same fluctuations in our um, subscriber numbers. And look, I think the genesis of this actually predates the pandemic as far as I'm concerned. You know, six or seven years ago, everyone was talking about how you don't need newspapers anymore because you've got Facebook. And then Donald Trump came along. Right. I think that had a really big impact on people's understanding of the difference between what you read on social media and what you read in a mainstream masthead. And obviously the New York Times have, have shown the rest of the world about how to capitalise on that. But I think it's had an impact here as well. And I think people have gone to the Australian and they've gone to the West Australian and they've come to us. And I think that was already happening before the pandemic. While that, that top of the funnel has definitely grown over the past 18 months, I don't, I am confident that we're not going to have a big drop off in subscribers once people are allowed out of the house. And that rate of subscription of the subscribers uh, through COVID was, was the onboarding or however the term you want to use, was it greater than pre-COVID, Tori, for you? 
yeah, the acquisition rate was higher, right? But the churn rate was not as high. Got it, Michelle. I think you've just hit. Was it three hundred or four hundred thousand subscribers at the odds? And obviously, the the first uh, masthead here in, in this market to do it is that where you're sitting now? Uh, Paul, we've we've just marked ten years as as uh, having a digital paywall on the Australian. We were the first major publisher to do so. I can't give you exact numbers. We were at one hundred and eighty thousand in the middle of last year. And let's say we've had double-digit growth since then. So uh, we're looking pretty good 10 years into this big, brave experiment, and that's what it was in 2011, of having a hard digital paywall. And, Anthony, what's happened uh, over in the West on that front? Yeah, I mean, we're, so we launched our, um, our digital paywall two years ago, and, and, you know, we're quite lucky, I guess, in a sense, in WA because we do have you know, such a strong monopoly on the news over here. You know, Western Australia is, you know, an island within an island, so to speak. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, it's taken off. Um, but look, we're, we're really proud. Our, our paywall, we consider it to be phenomenally successful. And, and you know, we do do it a little bit differently. I mean, um, you know, Nine has a metered paywall. News Corp has a very strict paywall. We quite manually turn our paywall on and off depending on what the stories are and that works for us. It's a little bit more work um, for the individual producers, but it seems to do the trick for us. Uh, Tori, what were, what were some of the sort of the biggest learnings uh, from COVID about audience behaviour? I think you've said that readers are coming in for COVID, during COVID, but they're staying for a whole bunch of other things. What, what's the, what is the behaviour there you're seeing uh, once they come in? Well, that's the really important thing. It's the ones that do stick around um, during the day to look at other other pieces of content that do stick. And one of the things that we've had enormous success with in the last 12 months is our lifestyle content. Julia Norton, who's the lifestyle editor, was basically decided to significantly reduce the volume of stories that she and her team were producing and increase the quality of those stories. Mm. We measure our the performance of our stories on a fairly complicated dashboard it's not complicated to use it's just complicated to explain where we look at audience segments and also benchmark performances and the performance of the lifestyle content by that um, on that dashboard is almost embarrassing now I mean there is so much green on that dashboard and it was by reducing the volume of stories really and making sure that we get the mix right on the homepage because that's been a big challenge during COVID is that the top of the homepage can be so grim and if people think that we're just hard news and just investigations, then it's easier for them to come just for those and go, oh, well, I don't really know about their great food content or that amazing series on how to start running. Um, But if we present um, that properly to our audience, they're really engaging with it and a big part of that has been newsletters. It's not rocket science, everyone's doing it, but they are a very highly effective way to increase engagement and drive subscriptions. And it's crazy that newsletter still holds up, even, you know, um, 100 years on from email, it's still holding up. The The interesting thing that you talk about with um, that balance of sort of uh, the grim and I guess hope, happiness and, and escapism, if you like, or, or light entertainment, that's, that's the offset to... That's often the downside to, you know, news reporting where you're reporting on things that aren't necessarily the the happiest things on the planet. Uh, People are clearly wanting both. Oh, definitely. And there's also a way to cover things. I mean, one of the biggest challenges at the moment for us in the newsroom is covering the topic of climate change and in the lead up to COP without it just being so despairing that people stop reading. And But you, you need to be really careful not to go down the 
Pollyanna path and just, you know, write stories about how great it is that this tiny little technological thing over here is working really well. Um, you need to find a way to report really constructively and make it so that people can engage with these really complicated and difficult issues without being overwhelmed by them, especially at the moment, because everyone is just that little bit um, less maybe resilient than they were two years ago. And Michelle, I mean, you've had quite a, a sort of a shift in in, in, the, in the, your, how your cli- uh, climate change uh, coverage is going. Uh, that aside, we'll get to that. But you know, key learnings out of COVID, and then you know, do you reflect what Tori's talking about there um, in what she's seen in the in the in the sort of uh, hardcore news and uh, sort of a lighter touch on things? Yeah, Paul, I think there's a couple of things. Obviously, COVID, you know, news is news is news, and it's uh, news is king. But I would agree with Tori about the breadth of our content being really important because, of course, as the crisis unfolded, people yearned for lifestyle content, rich storytelling, uh, stories which took them away uh, from the grim content. And we saw, in particular, a strong um, uh, move towards weekends. And by that, I'm, I mean both an increase in print sales and also increased audience on weekends. And, of course, that weekend newspaper experience is one that sort of, you know, for the Weekend Australian and and I'm sure for other titles encapsulates kind of or is a representation of the complete personality of the newspaper in which arts, culture, music, sport, uh, as well as news, rich storytelling, feature writing and commentary in our case is is all there in a big national newspaper and so that was really as an editor that was really gratifying to see that happen uh in the last year or two so yes i agree breadth of content and uh look the only thing i would add to that is uh the contest of ideas i think that commentary has played uh, a particularly strong role. Um, this predates COVID, but I could draw your attention to a piece we published by Gideon Hay, our cricket writer, at the weekend. And it was supposed to be Freedom Day, um, but he wrote a piece that was full of seething rage about the Victorian lockdown. And uh, he said, it was impossible for him to feel grateful on the so-called Freedom Day. The losses had been too great, the mistakes too numerous and the relief too uncertain. This struck a chord, I mean, a tremendous chord, and I suppose it reminded me of the need for all of us to um, to tap into that, to what people are feeling, sometimes underneath uh, the surface. The surface narrative of that day was Victoria opens up, hooray. And his piece was was miserable, actually. It was. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it did... Uh, it, but, but real. Yes, but real, and it did incredibly well. So it's a reminder to swim upstream, to challenge the orthodox narrative, to, um, to do that. And I, I don't think that's a COVID-specific phenomenon, but I suppose... Just a reminder on the uh, the opinion and perspective stuff in terms of your subscriptions, Michelle. Is it those? Is it is it the commentary that's an equal or a bigger driver to your subs than than other content? What ends up being the sort of the, the attraction there for audiences? Well, I think it's probably for us the be- the big. It, it's probably one of the big three. So I would say for us, it's politics and national affairs, business 
And I think commentary, in particular, the uh, content of the inquirer section on a Saturday, um, th that would be number three for us. So it's up there. And just uh, and just on the climate change thing, just talk us through for, for my audience the shift that um, News Corp and the Oz is working on in terms of climate change. What's behind that? What happened? What changed or, or why? Well, how long have you got, Paul? <laughs> yeah, let's go. Let's go for three hours, shall we? I love this stuff. Well, I have to pull you up on one aspect there. I mean, the metros obviously have had, um, in the past couple of weeks, have been running a big campaign on net zero. Um, Joe Hildebrand has been leading the charge there, and you and your audience would no doubt have uh, heard. Uh, coverage of of this and it, it was a strident and pretty strong position and it was one as Robert Thompson said before uh, the uh, Senate inquiry last week it was the brainchild of the editors of those metro papers to come up with that positioning the Australian is a little bit uh, is a little bit different we're not part of that campaign always have been Michelle hasn't it the Oz it's always been a little bit different Paul yes um, but uh, the Australian, and I can say this with confidence because I've obviously been at the Australian for a very long time, um, our editorial stance hasn't changed at all on the Australian. We've always been a supporter of a market-based mechanism to deal with climate change. Um, we've always run a variety of perspectives on that from beyond Lomborg <laughs> to many voices um, in that climate change debate. And I think we're continuing to do so. So we run our own race a little bit, but it's, uh, but it's interesting. Obviously, it's the story of the day and it remains to be seen how much it's the story of the year next year as we head into an election campaign. I think that uh, post-Glasgow, uh, we might see a little bit of a settling in the um, dominance of the climate change debate and a, and a flip back to economics and economic recovery. But nevertheless, for some communities, it will remain front and centre when they go to uh, cast their vote next year. I might be a bit cheeky and say the odds might be picking up the, the audience that, um, say, the Herald and the Age is not getting then. Is that different 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 views from the audience? Would that be, um, you're going to knock me, smack my hand on that one or what? Oh, I might ask Tori to comment on that. Yes, <laughs> go Tori, let's go. We're, we're, we're doing just fine, thanks Paul. And and we were very happy to welcome News Corporation to um, to the rest of the world's view on the need to take action on climate change. Love it. Now, where, where's the West on this one? Well, actually, before we get to there, um, Anthony, because we're straight into the deep territory and I'll get in trouble, but um, in terms of the biggest learnings from COVID, uh, what, did, what did you see coming through that, um, that sticks for you? Probably platform-based, to be honest. I mean, I think one of the things that COVID taught all of us was the power of live streaming. You know, we have a a live morning radio show that we do from the newsroom. Um, we have an up late TV show that we do from the newsroom on our west.com.au. And it probably just was a reminder for us. I mean, we've had the philosophy for a while over here that, you know, we're holding the line on print while turbocharging digital. Um, and, you know, there were many nights early on in COVID and during the pandemic when, you know, I went to bed at night thinking, I'm so glad we would, had moved so fast um, in my first year in the role to set ourselves up for that live radio, that that late night TV show, um, because those things just became so important for us. And, and some of the numbers we were seeing during live streaming um, of, of press conferences, um, 
would rival, you know, traditional TV and traditional radio, definitely. Why was that? Why do you think people were coming to us? I think just ease. I mean, most people are watching it on their phones, right? I mean, you know, and and when you're watching something on your phone, the West.com's just as um, convenient as as 7 Plus or as as any sort of on-demand sort of thing. So, and, you know, we also found that, you know, one... Again, getting back to we had the right people on our shows and, you know, the, the pulling power of the West Australian, you know, often meant that we would have the premiere on in the morning on our radio show, um, which brought its audience with it. So Yeah, well, it's a true multi-platform play then when you talk about that. Um, what's your sense, Anthony, on what's next? what next year looks like for the public's interest around issues, themes and interests? Uh, is there anything starting to burn? We've talked a little bit about climate change with, uh, with Michelle and Tori. Uh, where do you see that landing for you, that particular theme, but also beyond? What, what, are the, what are the burners for next year, do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, look, I think can't get away from the fact we're probably going to walk into a federal election, you know, I mean, we have to. Um, so that'll probably, I mean, people are talking March or May. I think the federal election, you know, is going to be so crucial and so big in Western Australia in particular, which, you know, there's an old joke that by the time West Australians go to the polls or, you know, by the time the polls close in WA, the election's already over. Um, but I actually genuinely think it could come down, you know, if we look at a hung parliament situation or something like that, it could very well come down to two or three seats in WA that might switch from from the coalition to Labor. So, look, you know, it's all going to be about the election, to be honest, I think. And I think, you know, someone mentioned earlier, it might have been Tory, about, you know, this pandemic isn't over. Like, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about booster shots and we're going to be talking about going back to mask wearing and, international travels, you know, not going to feel the same for, for at least a couple of years yet. Tori, uh, on, that, on that front of, of what the hot issues, themes, trends, interests might be for next year, um, do you have any, any thoughts on that? What, what are, you, are you sort of preparing for anything that's different? Yeah, absolutely. I think that one of the, apart from the things we've already talked about, um, one of the huge themes will be stitching this broken country back together. Um, I think if I, if I didn't have the interesting job that I... If I didn't have the interesting job that I have right now, I'd be taking next year off to write a book about how broken we are, um, thanks to the parochialism and some terrible behaviour by a lot of people in powerful positions over the last 18 months. And I think that how we put all that back together is going to be fascinating. And on the real rubber hits the road side of that, I think that um, there's a huge interest from our audience and from everyone to participate in a proper conversation about mental health. And I think that that you know, if there is one bright side to what's happened in the last two years, it's that um, it's no longer embarrassing to put your hand up and say you're struggling because I don't think there's actually anyone in the entire country who hasn't struggled at some point or doesn't have someone close to them who has. And I think that that, I I certainly hope that that will be a long-lasting impact from the pandemic is the fact that we now need to talk honestly about mental health as a mainstream health issue, as an economic issue, as a social issue. And that's certainly something that we're doing a lot of work on at the Herald and the Age. So we'll see a bit of that next year, then you think? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Michelle, concur with that or your different view? Yeah, I think the economy, the recovery, you know, all associated issues with the revival of small business, housing affordability. I agree with Tori on the importance of mental health and the focus on that. I think restitching the social fabric, if you like, you know, is is building social capital. It, it it's it has eroded in many of our um, in many of our cities. Uh, it, it's 
it's interesting to look at the rebuilding of the Federation. How do the states relate to one another coming out of this um, era in which border wars and parochialism were so dominant? I think our new ways of working, finding a new way of working that's a, you know, do people return to the office? How does that work? I think there are so many issues that we are going to be discussing um, in the next year. It's like the aftermath of a federal election I often find is kind of, is often more interesting than the lead up to it. And I think that the same could almost be said of COVID. You know, we've had health reporters dominate the front pages of our newspapers for the past year. But as we move past the peak of the health crisis, they will share that space with almost, with experts across the newsroom from economics to social affairs, you name it. Uh, it's There's so much complexity to this recovery and I think it's uh, going to be a great time to be in media. So some of the critics uh, in, of news media will argue that news media benefits from tension and you talk about the sort of a fractured society and, um, and trying to rebuild it or bring it back together again. Um, just to that point, uh, uh, Michelle, on, 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 you know, tension is good for, 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 for news. Uh, and secondly, are you genuine, genuinely optimistic that as a society, as an Australian society, we can get back, to, back closer, be more, be more kind of together? Or is it basically we've got tribes and the tribes are here forever? Yeah, that's a big question, Paul. Um, Sociological, <laughs> psychological, whatever else, crikey. I don't think that there's any doubt. We talked about trust earlier on in the context of newspapers. I don't think there's any doubt that we've seen reduced levels of trust in institutions more broadly, in obviously churches, in governments, in big business. And I think um, so there is that broader narrative and I think the pandemic has, uh, I guess, supercharged that in a way because we've seen such distinct parochialism and I think it has increased the levels of distrust that people have in their, in their leaders. But I am a bit of a Pollyanna and, and I do think that we will recover as a society quicker than people may think, notwithstanding what I've just said. And the reason for that is I think that we are tribal, but uh, the human condition, I think, necessitates that we look for the good in others and that we come together in times of crisis. And I think there have been plenty of examples of that for over the past year that for optimists like me, give us reason to hope. Good. I'm glad there's one in the world. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony, the, the, are you optimistic about, you know, a fractured parochial tribal uh, society being able to sort of get men hold arms and give each other a hug again? Is that really going to happen? We're, we're in a very lucky country. I think Australians, you know, will come back together. But I also think, look, as a proud and parochial West Australian myself, you know, there's no doubt that WA is, you know, to a large degree has been at the forefront of parochialism. Um but I think that that has tapped into a sentiment that's always been there. And, you know, as, as a West Australian who has lived in Sydney for a long time, who has lived overseas for a long time, I think it just tapped into a sentiment of, you know, not enough people in the East Coast do understand the WA economy. They, you know, not enough people in the East Coast do give Western Australia enough credit for the fact that, you know, we do all the exporting of iron ore, we, we hold up the economy. And, and so I think, you know, to a degree, some of the 
will stick around because I think it's it's only logical that it does. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all Australians, and I imagine that in a democracy like ours, we will move on and be there for one another. So a tempered parochialism, perhaps. Um, Tory, the sense that can we get it back together? Obviously, we don't have newspapers, don't have algorithms like the tech giants do to really surface lots of tension. But you know, how optimistic really are you? It's a it's a good ideal. Uh, can society get back to that? Oh, look, I think we can. I I don't know how quickly it'll happen. I am generally an optimistic person too, and I would like to think that we can move past it. I think it'll probably take a bit of a wash through of the cycle of politicians, to be honest. Next generation, you think? I'm not saying they enjoyed taking people's freedoms away, but I think they're going to find it very hard to stop being in charge of people's lives, to be honest. And um, I think once you've done it, it's very hard to undo it. And I think that might be why we're seeing the situation that we have in New South Wales at the moment is that we have a new Premier who didn't just spend 18 months doing 11am press conferences wagging his finger at people telling them what to do. And I think it, it might take a sort of generational shift of the politicians to get through that, I reckon. Yeah, interesting. Well, look, we talked, I mean, both uh, Michelle and Anthony have talked a little bit about trust. Um, there are two wildly divergent debates on this uh, around media and the mastheads more specifically. Uh, Edelman's obviously global annual uh, trust barometer benchmark argues that public trust in main media, uh, apart from the other institutions that Michelle referenced, uh, main media is on the slide. Um, how do you explain explain those public uh, perceptions if Edelman is right? And I'll, I'll go to you first, Anthony, on that. I think at the end of the day, the readership speaks for itself, right? And and we've seen a massive increase in people coming to our sites and picking up our newspapers. You know, surveys and, and data can be manipulated however you want. At the end of the day, we're mass media traditional outlets that are seeing a rise in customers. Um, and I think that speaks for itself. Tori? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that um, pe- journalists have never been popular. It's not a new phenomenon that people think journalists are a bunch of ratbags. Exotic and intriguing, but not popular. Yeah, and look, there would be people who come to us every day who still hammer us when they think that we've that we've interpreted something in a way that they don't like and therefore we're on so-and-so's payroll or in that person's pocket, but they're still, like, coming to us every day. So right. I don't know what the figures show, but I, I think that the results of all of our mastheads show that there must have been some increase in the trust in recent years. Um, interestingly, I saw some figures the other day about the trust in the ABC and it's not looking so good. Uh, Michelle, you know, we do reference the fact that trust in institutions like uh, the church, like politics, uh, is waning. Uh, in the same sort of group, sometimes media is lobbed into that. We'll buy, we'll buy the fact that institutional trust is on the wane for some of those other ones, but not for media. Um, but how do you reconcile that, that perception on at least what people say? Uh, and it's the same, although obviously people say they hate advertising, but they actually respond to it. So there's a say and do thing going on here. But, but um, what's your sense on reconciling that, that, that trust issue? For media. Yeah, Paul, I think there's no doubt the media is caught up in that broader narrative that I talked about earlier. But I think it's quite interesting when you look within media, there's a counter narrative. And the counter narrative within media is that trust in traditional media compared to perhaps news that people source on social media is very much trusted. And we spoke earlier about the era of Trump, where you did see um, enormous growth in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. You've had the same um, 
in the t- with the Times in London and with um, the Australian here, you've had a flight to quality media. And I think that's, I, I will cherry pick a bit of data, if you don't mind, Paul. No, we're allowed to do that. I do it too. <laughs> I, I would uh, I'd just draw your attention to the Reuters Institute digital report that it puts out, I think comes out of Oxford University, and its latest survey was in 2021. And it, it surveys 46 countries around the world and it looks at trust, brand trust in media as part of that. And its results for 2021 show that Australian media generally is up 5%. Um, right. I'll give you a couple of figures and I think some of our mastheads are all about the same. But we had a trust rating on the Australian of 55%. A trust rating on social media by comparison was about 18%. That high, crikey. (laughs) So, I I mean, that's my response to you. Yes, there's a a broader loss of trust in institutions. Yes, media's caught up in it. But within within the ecosystem of media and news, traditional media organisations are faring very well indeed, and that's for good reason. Good points. Um, what about this, editors, the perpetual perception that news and mastheads are losing the young? Anthony, you've got some strident views around this one. It's essentially, you know, well, I won't blow your thunder. Give it to us because you've, you've, you've got a, a big call on it. Yeah, look, I am a, a broken record when people say to me, well, young people don't read the newspapers. And, like, I always kind of counter it by saying, well, did they ever read the newspapers? Um, I know I wasn't really reading the newspaper when I was young. I was too busy having fun and playing sport and going to parties. Like, I think you start reading the newspaper when you have a mortgage, when you have a career, not a job, but a career, and and when you're paying taxes and those sorts of things. So, look, I think it's a little bit of a fallacy. I mean, I, I study our newspapers' numbers a lot, and our young readership, you know, has been really buoyant. Um, but the truth is it makes up a tiny proportion of our newspaper readers because... Our newspaper readers are older adults. Um, and where it comes down to on a branding level is we need to use our websites um, and our video and our audio to get young people because that's where they are. But, you know, when the time comes, I'm sure they'll pick up the newspaper too. There's always been the argument, isn't it, that people come in usually in their 30s, in the, in, in the days that I'm old enough to remember newspapers when there was no digital, no online, and it was always then, it was 30s, 30s was when they'd kick into the, the newspaper cycle. Tori, your thoughts on, on the young, um, losing them or eating them or whatever it might be, um, uh, what's happening, what do you see? Well, I, we see it as a long game. Right. So I, I think I, I agree with Anthony in that people sort of grow into reading newspapers. And so what's really important is that while they are young, they are seeing quality um, stories that speak to them from the Herald and the Age on the platforms on which they live so that they understand that that's where good quality news comes from. So that when they do want to know about um, bigger issues relating to either the world or their own lives, they know that we're the place to come to. Can you give us a sense of uh, of how that works for the Herald of the Age in terms of, off, I mean, you're talking about off-platform um, uh, into, into the social media feeds, I guess? So we don't look at social media as being a traffic driver right. for us. We look at it as being a brand play and it's a it's a slow burn brand play, but it's important. Right. Michelle, on that one, off-platform? Off yeah, we're doing, we do quite a bit of, of work off platform we uh, on Instagram in particular. But I think what needs to be said here is 
young people do read news. I mean, they don't on the whole, as the others have said, read print papers. They don't necessarily come in through the front door of the home pages of our publications, but they know what's going on. They, they, they read it. And um, so I think there's a little bit of a misconception around that. I also looked at, the, at our latest breakdown of subscriber data for age group and roughly 30% of our subscribers are over 55 but or I think it's about 32%, but 30% oh, right. are also under 35. And I think, that's, I think that challenges the idea that newspaper readers, and by newspaper readers I mean, you know, in across platforms are, are all old. Like me. Or retired. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, Paul, I, I think the thing that, like, we never get enough credit for in the newspaper industry, to be honest, is the fact that we are such a disruptor and you look across the mediums um, and newspapers, you know, have been at the forefront of disruption. And, you know, I always use the example of the Australian, you know, winning a Gold Walkley for a podcast. Like, you know, a radio outlet didn't win that podcast Gold Walkley, a, a newspaper did. Um, you know, we had a podcast on the Claremont Serial Killer trial that racked up 7 million downloads. Um, we just don't get enough credit for the fact that we are very good at disrupting um, media platforms and we've become so good at it. So, you know, when we talk audience plays, you know, none of us are still talking just the print product. Yeah, it's a great point. The other point I would make, Paul, is that it's our newsrooms that are actually doing the journalism that all of these um, more social media-led um, outlets rely on. So I am constantly being told there's a, there's a particular um, newsletter and podcast about news. It's very popular, especially in Sydney, and people are constantly saying to me, oh, I love this one, I love that one. It's like, yeah, but they, they don't have a newsroom. They don't do any journalism. They read our newspaper and then talk about it on their podcast in the morning. And so I keep saying to my newsroom, we need to be that for ourselves. Right, right. We need to take our own journalism that we are, you know, doing with a newsroom that's got nearly 500 people in it that's highly resourced and highly energetic and make sure that if people are seeing that journalism, they're seeing it on platforms and in com in formats that we've delivered to them. Right, and where they are, yeah. We'll finish off with this one. The conversations you're having with, with advertisers now. Now, Michelle, I think we talked earlier about how there's even a misunderstanding um, amongst advertisers. Granted, you've got subscription revenue coming now, less reliant on advertising, but advertisers have a perception, for instance, with your podcasts, uh, it's actually women that are that are loving the crime podcast, which is kind of counter to what maybe um, might be perceived. Just talk us through that uh, that a little bit, and what is going on with advertisers, Michelle? Uh, do you have a, do you talk to them, or are you still church and state? And what are you if you do talk to them? Uh, what are they telling you? What are what are they wanting to hear and, and know? There's a bit of church and state that still goes on, but you look. I think advertisers, on the whole, want to reach their target audience in a in a safe environment but I think I'd like to challenge I suppose the traditional view of a safe environment and my example of that would be our podcasts for example and um, Anthony referred to Hedley Thomas's Teacher's Pet podcast in 2018 which had more than 50 million uh, downloads around the world. It was extraordinarily successful. And what I would say on the advertising front, Headley's got another podcast um, out right now. And um, 
Harvey Norman have signed on again to support Headley's podcast. Indeed, they were the supporter and the sponsor of The Teacher's Pet back in 2018. Now, podcasts that deal with true crime and unsolved murders are sometimes in that genre of reporting that people consider or as too gruesome uh, or a little bit, you know, grim. <laughs> and, and yet... It has clearly worked um, for Harvey Norman to come back and sponsor those podcasts time again, time and again. And I suppose they are particularly uh, popular with young women. And women, as we know, um, often are the decision makers in households when it comes to buying goods and services. And uh, Well, in my house, it's the rest as well. <laughs> I think that that does challenge the, the kind of traditional idea of a safe environment. Uh, Anthony, uh, advertisers, uh, the conversations you're having, do you have them? Yeah, definitely. Look, I, you know, I think for us anyway, the, the days of church and state or, or newsrooms and advertising being two different departments, that they're at constant war with, with one another are probably over. Um, but I think that's a good thing. You know, I think... Um, you know, I think as we're all in this together, we need to go forward together and find different ways to to work um, to a reasonable solution. But I, look, I think right now, you know, and, and a lot of it is because of COVID and the pandemic and that trust um, thing that we've spoken about quite a lot. But I, I don't think there's ever been a better time um, to be in the industry we're in. I mean, I'm 36, so I've been in the industry for about 10, 12 years, maybe 15 years off the top of my head. But you know, the existential cliff that I used to see every other year when I was a young reporter right. definitely doesn't feel like that's around anymore. In fact, yeah. you know, it feels like we've completely climbed over that cliff and we're looking at a new dawn um, and people are interested in advertising in all of our products, including the newspaper, um, and we're all sort of turbocharging and, and running full steam ahead. Tori, how's your uh, dialogue discussions go with uh, advertisers? What, are they, what do you talk to them about and what do they want to know and, and what's your take on what, um, what Michelle and Anthony have, have just said? I don't get a sense that they're afraid of being around news at all. I think that they... That was the case last year though, right? They went dark big time. Well, I don't know that that was necessarily about being afraid of being around news. I think that every company in Australia at the beginning of the pandemic thought that we were heading off an economic cliff and everyone started consolidating cash. That is an equally good point. I'll give you that one. Yeah, so I don't I don't ever I never got the sense that they didn't want to be around bad news because it wasn't the first bad news story. I mean, we didn't have any trouble getting advertising during the bushfires. Mm. Um and so I don't think that that's necessarily what happened. I, I think that our, our sales team are very confident at the moment and having a lot of really promising campaigns and conversations. And I think that it partly goes to what we've just spent the last 40 minutes talking about, which is the fact that these mastheads are trusted by the audience that read them. And that's a very different experience. I mean, Facebook and Google can deliver you eyeballs but those eyeballs do not get, um, uh, you know, ascribe any sort of authority to the advertising next to what they're reading because they don't have any trust in the platform that they're on. But if someone is a loyal reader of The Australian or The West Australian or The Herald of the Age, then it, that's a good space to be for an advertiser. And I think that they can see 
what we've just been talking about of people coming to us for that authority and because they trust us and they want a part of it. Yeah, well, so I guess it's a little bit of a plug there for Think News Brands as well. The, the, the study that's been conducted um, is, is saying exactly that there's a halo effect from credibility and news to the halo that goes across to, to advertisers. So you're right. Uh, Michelle, Anthony, Tori, great conversation. Really enjoyed that one. Thanks for joining. Stay safe and let's see what happens next year. Crikey, we might have to get you back. <laughs> Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Bye. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's moi, producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 audio edition to listen for free. Listener.